Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Nehemiah chapter three. When we ended chapter two of uh, Nehemiah, he had concluded his assessment of the situation with these destroyed walls surrounding Jerusalem and he called together the Judeans of various levels of society to enlist them to the mammoth task of rebuilding these walls. And as a leader with authority he could have dogmatically ordered these groups to work. But instead as a good leader does he explained the situation what his plan was, and why they should all work together to accomplish it. Now, Nehemiah approached them on three levels. And to my thinking, this is not so much a brilliant strategy as it is a good model. It's a model way to deal with people in general because he appealed to them in a way that fused the three aspects of of life that affect all civilized humanity. First, he spoke to them on why, from an everyday subsistence perspective, that everyone would benefit by a rebuilt, fortified defensive wall. It would help one and all, economically and from a safety and security standpoint. Second of all, he spoke from a cultural perspective. That is, while his reasoning applied to the Jewish mindset and the way of life in Judah, it wouldn't necessarily apply to a different or more modern society. Nehemiah explains then in the context of the then-current Hebrew culture that the sad state of Jerusalem heaped shame on all Judeans. And since this is a shame-honor-based culture, shame was an intolerable societal status that no one wanted. He showed them that rebuilding the walls would restore their honor as a Jewish community. And third, he made it clear that God had a purpose in this project. And in fact... Nehemiah received his marching orders from the Lord. So it is the Lord's will that the Judeans should direct every effort to rebuild the walls of the city that the Lord has placed his holy name upon, Jerusalem. Case closed. All that mattered, all that remained now, was for each group and family and individual to decide whether to do what was right and pitch in or do what was wrong and opt out. Now after Nehemiah received enthusiastic support from the community immediately three local Gentile rulers began making trouble. They began by mocking what Nehemiah and the Judeans were doing in attempting the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's response was not to threaten them, but plainly to lay down the law. These three rulers and their people had no right, no share, no claim to Jerusalem. But what exactly was Nehemiah responding to? when he answered to those mocking words. That is, we're told in the passage that the three rulers mocked what the Judeans were doing, but Nehemiah responded as if the three rulers wanted in on the project. And there's no such words to that effect that are present in the passage. However, I think we can reasonably assume that Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem, the rulers of Samaria, Ammon, and Arabia, respectively, made it clear in their jeering that the lowly Jews had no ability 
to pull off a project of this magnitude and complexity by themselves, the thought was laughable. And that if the Jews would only recognize and acknowledge this fact, then they could have peace with their neighbors. And they could get help to rebuild if they shared Jerusalem with these three rulers. Otherwise, to them, the Jews were merely appeared foolish and arrogant. And as King Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun. The rulers of these same, these exact three regions in our day fling the same claims against the people of Israel. How dare the Jews think they can have Jerusalem to themselves? Don't they know that the many powerful regional enemies of Israel find the Jewish position of having full autonomy over Jerusalem an affront to them? If Israel would only acknowledge that sharing Jerusalem with their enemies is a must, if Israel ever hopes to be left to exist in peace, then there could be progress. As bold as Nehemiah was in responding that the Samaritans, Ammonites, and Arabs have no claim whatsoever to Jerusalem, he knew full well that mere words wasn't going to end in the matter. But I feel confident that he also never imagined that 24 centuries later, the new rulers from the same regions would continue with their bogus claim over Jerusalem. But I also imagine that it would have been equally unthinkable to him that Jewish political leaders of modern day Israel would be intimidated to the point of actually being open to the demands of the enemy. And that no Jewish political leader would have the courage to loudly and clearly proclaim to the world you have no right, no share, no claim to Jerusalem. <clears throat> you know, we wouldn't even be reading about Nehemiah today if he'd been an appeaser in the mold of his modern Jewish successors. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 3 together. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. It's on page 1132 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. <clears throat> then Eliashiv, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, set out with his fellow Kohanim, the priests, and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it, set up its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred and onto the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men from Jericho built. Next to him, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasna'ah rebuilt the fish gate. Then they installed its timber framework and set up its doors along with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimot, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakotz made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berachah, the son of Meshevzael, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the men from Tekoa made repairs. But their nobles wouldn't put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Yoyada, the son of Paseach, and Meshulam, the son of Bosodiah, made repairs to the old city gate. They installed its timber framework and set up its doors along with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Melat-Yah, the Giboni, the Gibeonite, Yadon, the Marinoti, and the men from Gibeon and from Mitzpah made repairs. They worked for the people associated with the governor of the territory beyond the Euphrates. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Har-Hayah, goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs. They renovated Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, leader of half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to him, Yidiah, the son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashavniah, made repairs. Malkiah, the son of Harim, and Hashuv, the son of Pachat Moab, made repairs on another section and on the towers of the ovens, on the tower of the ovens. Next to them, Shalom, the son of Ha-Lochesh, leader of half the district of Yerushalayim, he and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the people living in Zanoach repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it. They set up its doors along with its bolts and bars and they rebuilt 1,500 feet of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkiah, the son of Rechav, leader of the district of Beit Hacharim, repaired the dung gate. He built, he rebuilt it and set up its doors along with its bolts and bars. Shalun, the son of Kol Jose, leader of the district of Mitzvah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it, covered it, set up its doors along with its bolts and bars. He also rebuilt the wall of the pool of Shelach by the royal garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nechmiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beit Zur, made repairs from the place opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the soldiers' barracks. After him, the Levites made repairs. Rahum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashaviah, leader of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his, for his district. After him, their colleagues, Bavai, the son of Henadad, leader of half the district of Keilah, made repairs. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, leader of Mitzpah, made repairs on another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zakai, worked diligently making repairs on another section from the angle to the door of the house of El Yeshav, the high priest. After him, after him, Meromot, the son of Uriah, made repairs on another section from the door of the house of El Yeshiv to the end of the house of El Yeshiv. After him, the priests from the plain made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashuv made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of uh, Ananya, made repairs to his house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the angle and tower that projects out from the upper part of the royal palace near the courtyard and of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Porosh made repairs since the temple servants were living in the Ophel as far as opposite the water gate to the east and tower that projects out. After him, the men from Tekoa repaired another section opposite the great tower that projects out and onto the wall of the Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs outside his house. After him, Shemiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. <coughs> After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, made repairs on another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berchiah made repairs opposite his own room. After him, Malkiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the mustering gate onto the upper room at the corner. And finally, between the upper room at the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. But when Sanvalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious. And greatly enraged, he ridiculed the Judeans. Before his kinsmen in the army of Shomron, he said, What are these pathetic Judeans doing? Are they going to rebuild anything they want? <clears throat> are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish it today? Are they going to recover useful stones from the piles of rubble, burned rubble at that? Toviah, the Ammonite, was with him and he said, well, whatever they're building, why even if a fox went up, he'd knock down their stone wall. Our God, listen, we are being treated with contempt. 
Turn back their jeers on their own heads. Give them over to be plundered in a land of exile. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be wiped out from before you because they have insulted the builders to their face. So we kept building the wall, which was soon joined together and completed to half its height all the way around because the people worked with a will. Nehemiah wasn't bluffing when he spoke those strong but truthful words to Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem that Jerusalem belongs only to the Jews. So, here in chapter 3 we get a report of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem by the Jewish community that lived in and around the city. Now the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is usually read and preached as a prelude to a church building project or when trying to rescue a church from splitting or going bankrupt. And in scholarly studies, the focus is always the topology of Jerusalem in that era and the location of all the various gates. However, what I'd like us to focus on is the necessary organization and each member of the community doing their part according to their resources and abilities. And further, how the majority of other nearby and similar communities often perceive a new work or especially as with Nehemiah, the restoration of an old work as unwanted competition, if not a threat. Beginning with the with studying the Levitical sacrificial system in the Torah, we are introduced to a God principle that acts as a common thread binding the entire Word of God together, each according to his or her means. Now this principle, interestingly, applies to giving and to receiving. But along with this we find that never does the one with the least get divine permission to opt out of his or her obligations to the Lord. It's only that their contribution in whatever form is to be proportionate with their circumstances and their ability to give. But give they must. Thus, for instance, a poor widow who sins is not given a pass when it comes to the requirement of an atoning sacrifice she must still produce something as inexpensive as a dove even if indeed in relation to her income it is costly and in our story it's not that those with the most means necessarily had to contribute by their own physical labor but they ought to pay for others to contribute labor or pay for materials and in a higher proportion than the poor. This principle applies to tithing as well. Studies of church finances over decades and decades in America have shown that this is a neglected or maybe even a lost principle. You see, as a rule, 20% of the congregation provides for 80% of a typical church's income. And And at least one in five people who attend regularly contribute nothing at all. Even more, only one in 20 churchgoers volunteer their time and labor. 19 of the 20 declined to help at all. And as 
the usual reason given it is I can't afford to give or I'm too busy to help. The Lord in His Word, Old Testament, New clearly establishes He does not accept this argument. If perhaps money is presently too insufficient for your needs, too dear to give, then you're to contribute your time and labor. Or perhaps one has set an otherwise good goal of enhancing their savings account or paying off a loan, but the money for tithing is channeled to that effort. Unacceptable. And thus as we look deeper into what we just read, we're going to see different socioeconomic groups of the Judean people working together on different sections of the wall based on their ability to contribute. Some will reconstruct large wall segments. Others, small segments. Some will contribute their own labors. Some will pay for their employees to work on the wall. Some won't contribute at all. And this is considered wicked. What we find in Nehemiah is that the wall rebuilding project was divided into about 40 sections. And a family or a group adopted one or two of these sections according to their reasonable ability to do the task. The tremendous community cooperation and the willingness of the vast majority of the Jewish society around around Jerusalem to participate, this is on display in chapter 3. Self-interest was put on the shelf for a time. And so with such godly attitudes prevailing and with excellent planning and organization, the reconstruction project sped along so fast that it literally alarmed the local antagonists. Now those who attend our local congregation here in Merritt Island, Seat of Abraham Fellowship, know that it is the rare day that I ever speak on money and giving. I believe that it is the responsibility of each individual to deal with God about this matter. But even more, I also know full well that every person listening to me already knows what you're supposed to do. It's only a question of whether you willfully and consciously choose obedience or disobedience to the Lord. That's the issue. Not not knowing. Yet for me to present Nehemiah to you and to ignore what's happening here and not to reapply it in the context of the duty of present day followers of Christ to contribute to the community, the congregation, would be wrong on my part. So I'm going to address this briefly but I'm also not going to mince any words. Having worked for a time for a megachurch and having full visibility into the finances and now having the honor to lead this ministry, I can say with pride that this congregation far exceeds the norm when it comes to volunteering and members supplying their time and talents and labor. Far. When it comes to tithing, we're only slightly better than the typical 28-year rule. And I don't want you to get me wrong. We don't have any outstanding debt. We don't have any glaring needs and I'm certainly not pleading for more money. Rather, I'm trying to say that this believer's community, which is what a congregation of God actually is, called Seed of Abraham, will only go so far in achieving what God has planned for us as each of its members responds personally to God's commandment that you contribute proportionately to your ability to give. And that that giving 
can be of time, talents, labor, money in various proportions according to your situation. You know, it's not often, thank the Lord, that someone among us is in such desperate circumstance that they can't contribute in one of these ways because that means then they probably have a severe health or life crisis going on. Now, if I'm pleading at all, it's to urge you to be a participating member of this community and not a spectator. And this is for the sake of your personal well-being and for the sake of your relationship with the Lord. That's because these are God's rules. They're not mine. God's going to judge you in this regard, not me. You'll never answer to me. You won't be singled out by me, no matter what you do in regard to contributing. But you will answer to God at some point. And your current lives will almost certainly be affected. Even if I can't tell you exactly how, and even if you might not realize it. Several folks before the time of Nehemiah tried rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and they failed. But it was because either the leadership or the community or both didn't approach the project in God's time and in God's way. It was only when good, solid leadership arrived. Organization rose from the chaos. And the majority of the people of the community participated in obedience and in heartfelt gratitude to God that the task was completed and the entire community benefited. Because that was the Lord's intention. And that's because that's how communities work. It's how congregations work. It's how God works. It may not always seem so to us. But contributing to God's community is a commandment of God. It's not an option. And it also comes with a blessing when we obey. So it's to our own enlightened self-interest that we do so. Now how do I know that's the case? Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse so that there will be food in my house and then put me to the test. Says Adonai Zebaot. Just see if I won't open for you the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you, a blessing far beyond your needs. Pretty definitive. As verse 1 begins, begins the explanation of how the work of rebuilding got divided up and organized and which groups worked on which wall sections. And, and keep in mind that the result was actually going to be a smaller Jerusalem than existed before the exile to Babylon. The other thing to keep in mind is that either Nehemiah or a later editor probably created the descriptions of the reconstructions that we see in this chapter from ancient records. And without doubt, this is an incomplete Cliff Notes version of what went on. It is put here to show how it was accomplished and to help future generations understand who the major families and groups were that participated and to a lesser extent. It provides a history of the method that the walls were reconstructed. And the method was that the project was divided into about 40 sections, each section more or less adopted by a family or group as their responsibility. So we can envision the entire wall being worked on simultaneously. Each group working alongside the next as opposed to a work crew working on one section, finishing it, moving on to the next in serial fashion. Further, we need to understand that some sections of the wall were completely demolished and even the rubble 
was unsuitable to be reused. Some parts were partially destroyed and merely needed repair. Other parts were left mostly intact and maybe they needed some maintenance. Assuming it's Nehemiah that wrote down the data for this chapter, he starts his list with Elishaf, the high priest. Now, Elishaf was a legitimate and hereditary high priest. That is, he was the grandson of Yeshua, who was the high priest at the time of Zerubbabel. Next to Nehemiah, Elishaf was the most important and influential person in Jerusalem, which is why he's mentioned first. He and the common priests rebuilt the Sheep Gate. Now this gate was in the northeastern corner of the city, next to the Temple Mount, and no doubt this is where the thousands of sheep needed for sacrificing were herded through by the Levites. The priests also rebuilt wall sections that included something called the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Now no doubt these were rather typical fortress towers that guarded the the entry gates into the city. Moving in a counterclockwise direction. Up here you see the sheep gate where it started. You see the two towers. Moving in a counterclockwise direction. This is uphill. This is downhill. The next section includes another gate called the fish gate. And what we know from the text is that verses 1 through 15 are about repairing and rebuilding the old wall as it existed before the exile. But at verse 16, it becomes about the construction of new walls, meaning old walls were abandoned and their location moved somewhat. Then begins a series of next twos. That is, a wall section built by a certain person. Actually, the name, whenever a name is used, it's meant to denote the leading member of a family or a group. And then next to that wall section, another another section was built with the understanding that where one section ended, the next one connected and so on and so forth. So Nehemiah's plan was that many wall sections were built in parallel simultaneously, not one section at a time the way a highway is kind of typically built. Especially in Florida. In verse 5 we get the first negative comment that a member of the Jewish community refused to participate and contribute. But all we can take from this is that some Jews didn't share the community's enthusiasm about the project. The town of Tekoa lay to the southeast of Jerusalem. And um, again, all we can do is speculate as to why the nobles of that town opted out. No doubt it was for either economic or political reasons. But what they were, we just don't know. However, do note whom it was, and boy, this is important, whom it was they were disappointing by their refusal. The passage says they would not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. In other words, it was God they were disobeying. It was God whose will they were going against, not Nehemiah's. And the other members of the community saw this. See, that's what we do as members of a congregation when some of us won't contribute. It's not a trespass against the congregational leader that we're committing. It's a trespass against the Lord. And that's the real problem of this. The reality is that both Jews and Christians tend to see sins of omission as minor versus sins of commission as serious. And we tend to assume this false sense of security 
that if we don't do something we're supposed to do, that we're less liable to suffer at God's hand than if we do something we shouldn't have done. Well, in verse 6, the tour of the repaired wall continues with that section that the family of a fellow named Yoyada built. Then Melatia built the next part. And in verse 8, there's a noticeable change. Because there we find the mention of goldsmiths and then next perfume makers. In other words, we find that some of the work was assigned to professional craft guilds, not to families. This shows us that Jerusalem did have a semblance of of an economy working and that guilds from that era were formal organizations, not just casual associations of people who performed the same craft. And next in verse 9 we find mention of Rephiah, the leader of it says the half district of Jerusalem. In other words, Judah was divided up into smaller units like counties or parishes. And in some cases, these smaller units had more than one leader because the district was further subdivided, probably for just organizational purposes. And it was the people of this half district of Jerusalem that were responsible for repairing the wall section next to the one repaired by the Perfume Makers Guild. And as we continue to follow the wall line, we come to verse 10 and we find that a person built a small section of wall next to his own house and another family built another small section. Then in verse 12, Shalom, the leader of the other half of the Jerusalem district is mentioned as being responsible for a wall section. And what I like now is the specific mention of his daughters being involved, directly involved. All I really want to say here is that while the Lord makes a distinction between male and female and he has assigned separate roles to male and female he assigns equal value and worth to male and female so in our story here is it because this man had no sons that the daughters lent a hand? probably But we find no implication that Nehemiah or anyone else balked at women working alongside the men of the community to rebuild the walls. This was a community effort. So all the Jews were welcome to join in. Well, in verse 13, we find that the good people of the town of Zanoach were apparently numerous and prosperous enough to take on rebuilding a huge wall section that was 1,500 feet long. I want to pause here to reiterate our featured God principle today. Each according to his means. None of these people in chapter 3 are praised above the others due to the size of the wall section that they adopted. The people of Zanoch donated this 1,500 foot long wall section, but in God's eyes, they gained no more merit than Yediah, who built a short section next to his home. And I spoke to you about this principle regarding giving of our money, time, and talents in proportion to what God has given to us. Yeshua validates it using the example of the widow giving the small amount of money called widow's mites and seeing it as just as valuable if not more so than what the rich gave. What is often missed is that although she was poor she was still required to give even though it was small. She gets credit for what she was supposed to be doing in God's eyes. The rich, on the other hand, are cast in a little lesser light because while they gave a lot, which is a good thing, it was small in comparison to their wealth. So they shouldn't be overly proud of their contribution or look down upon those whose means to give were less. Remember, everyone remembers this story from Mark 12, 
41 through 44. Then Yeshua sat down opposite the temple treasury and he watched the crowd as they put money into the offering boxes. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small coins. And he called his Talmudim, his disciples to him, and he said to them, Yes, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the offering box than all the others making donations. For all all of them, out of their wealth, have contributed money they can easily spare, but she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had to live on. Well, as we arrive at verse 15, we get some names of places that are suspiciously similar to identifiable places in Jerusalem today. But the names aren't exact and we can't be certain. On the other hand, some good scholars think we shouldn't quibble and rather use some common sense to see that, for instance, the pool of Shelach has to be what some years later is called the pool of Shiloam, alternatively the pool of Shiloah. For one thing, the Hebrew spelling of Shelah and Shiloam is essentially the same. That is, this is very exciting for me for a number of reasons, especially when we read of these stairs that go down from the city of David and it's exciting to me because I was there at the archaeological dig at the city of David the day the first stair was uncovered. And only a few days after the pool of Shalom itself was discovered. And indeed, just as we read here in verse 15, those stairs take you from the upper city down to the pool. Today, if you got the stamina, you can take Hezekiah's tunnel from the top of the city of David, descend down to the pool of Shalom, then enter to the newly discovered stairway that actually has become a tunnel because an entire city section was built above it over the centuries and walk all the way up essentially to the Dung Gate near the western wall, back uphill. Those steps were built at least 2,500 years ago and probably a little bit more. I mean, what a thrill. And what living proof that the words of Nehemiah are accurate even if not everything has yet been verified. And by the way, it is at this point that the original wall built before the exile to Babylon was abandoned by Nehemiah. And a new one was constructed following a different line. And this different line begins at verse 16. Now we're not going to go over over every point of the wall and deal with every gate. Rather, I'd like to point out more pertinent matters such as the words of verse 16 that says that the new wall section went by the tombs of David. Now, the tombs of David are referring to the royal burial site where King David and his descendants, probably some of his ancestors, were buried. Now, it's curious that these tombs have yet to be discovered. Yet these tombs are mentioned in numerous places in the Bible and it would be ludicrous to suggest that they never existed. Although because they've not yet been discovered, a number of Bible scholars claim David's tomb is biblical fantasy. Now it doesn't help, by the way, that Judaism has identified David's tomb as next to the upper room of New Testament fame on Mount Zion in the the Greek Orthodox section of Jerusalem far from the city of David. But no serious Bible scholar, Jewish or Christian, gives any credence to that burial chamber as actually belonging to King David. Well, as we continue, continue our wall tour, we're working our way back up the hill. We've gone around the end. We're working our way back up the hill now and closer to the Temple Mount. So now we start to see, as we get up higher and higher and higher, there's a Temple Mount up here, higher and higher, we start to see more mention of Levites and priests 
involved in the building or of wall locations given relative to a certain Levite or priest's house. And once we reach verse 27, we get mentioned that we're at the wall of the Ophel. And the area of the Ophel is right in here. This whole area is called the Ophel. And it's a readily identifiable area between the upper part of the city of David, which ends about here, this being the original city of David, and the lower part of the Temple Mount, which ends about here. And we know that the water gate was just before the Ophel, so it too was towards the upper part of the city of David. It could not have been down the slope and closer to the Gihon Springs as some people suppose. But next in verse 27 we read that the men of Tekoa repaired a second section of the wall. So, as typical of any congregation and community, some are able to do more and to go well above and beyond, partly because they have the resources to do so, but also because they are so zealous to want to do all they can to fulfill God's will in their lives. Well, by verse 29, we have mention of the Eastern Gate, which puts us back up at the Temple Mount area, right up here. And by verse 32, we've completed our circuit. We're back to our starting point, the Sheep Gate. Well, depending on your Bible version, this is the end of chapter 3. Or, if you have a version based on the Hebrew Bible, like the complete Jewish Bible, we still have verses 33 through 38 to go. Now, if you have a version based on the Latin Bible or on the Greek, then these same verses appear as the beginning of chapter 4. So it's all there for you, no matter which one you got. And what we find in them is that Sanvalat, the chief instigator of hatred towards the Judeans, hears that the rebuilding of the wall is underway and he becomes enraged. And we see that his reaction to this news is far greater than what we read at the end of chapter 2 because back then, the rebuilding of the wall was just a hope of the Jews. Uh, Now the plan's moving on to fruition. This time, instead of voicing his disapproval to the potential wall builders, he shouts his ridicule to his own leaders and his allies. Now no doubt this was meant to boost morale because obviously... It's now appearing that Nehemiah is on the verge of pulling off what Sanvalat thought and announced was near to impossible. Essentially, we are reading of this rather customary Middle Eastern chest-thumping and hugely over-the-top threatening language that we've all seen on television from the likes of Saddam Hussein to Ayatollah Khomeini to the current leaders of the terrorist groups ISIS and Hezbollah and Hamas. And what this actually is, is an act of face-saving. No doubt Sanvalat made an arrogant promise to his people and his allies that Nehemiah and the Jews were never going to build that wall. Oops. So now the issue evolves from discouraging the Jews from rebuilding the wall to how dare they do it. He wonders out loud if the Jews think they're going to finish that thing today. They're working so fast. He's responding to all this startling speed and skill at which these long broken down walls are rising back up. And all this is being accomplished by a people he has no respect for. His ally Tovia from Amon chimes in by saying that, okay, alright, they managed to build the wall, but it must be so poorly built that if a fox steps on it, it'll just fall apart. When Nehemiah heard about these statements of the enemy, he prayed. I mean, what a wonderful mix of pragmatic political leader and godly man he was. Why does he go to God with this? Because God inspired the work. 
it was God's will that was being accomplished. So Nehemiah asked God to vindicate him. Bring upon the enemy's heads what they have just wished upon the Jews. In fact, let them face exile for their rebellion the same way the Jews did for theirs. And Nehemiah's final reason for wanting God to deal harshly with them because they have insulted the builders to their face reverts to a cultural one. Shame and honor. The enemies tried to shame the people who were simply doing God's work. So now God should take the enemy's honor away from them. The chapter ends with the remark that the Jews were not deterred by these threats. And they continued building until all the sections were completed and connected. However, in an effort to get at least a partially effective wall rebuilt, they only built each section to about half the height they had at one time been. So it was probably 15 feet or so high on average, plenty enough to provide a measure of security for the residents if there were sufficient watchmen placed around the wall. Now I love the final words of chapter 3. It says... There was great success because the people worked with a will. That is, the people of the Jewish community committed to a common goal to obey God and to thus better their community for the good of everyone. They put their hearts and souls into their work. Nehemiah, as their leader, did not take credit. See, leadership is needed... Leadership is critical. But it's just one role in a community of many roles. And every role has to be filled. Or it's not going to function properly. In the end, it is the people who will make a community succeed or not. It's the people shouldering the load together, lifting up one another, everyone contributing according to their means and not leaving it to the other guy. We're going to begin chapter 4 next week.